It all sounds eerily familiar. Covid is spreading across China as the winter cold virus grips the northern hemisphere. In China, where new Covid infections are soaring... One by one, countries across Europe are imposing travel restrictions on those arriving from China. At the moment, I think we keep it under review. But the UK government is split. Top medical officials clamour for action, but disagreements in the cabinet mean that a decision is still days away. But this isn't December 2019. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackwell, and in this first episode of 2023, we are lifting the lid on the UK government's response to China's new COVID outbreak and looking at what it tells us about the future of the virus. Later, we will be looking at another story about our health. Scientists think that they may have found a way to make us all live to 120 and healthily. But first, we are joined by our policy editor, Jane Merrick, whose vital reporting guided us through the darkest days of the pandemic. Once again, Jane has been holding the government's feet to the flames about this latest outbreak. Hi, Jane. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us. Tell us what's happened in China and why it's having implications over here. So since the start of the pandemic, China has had a zero COVID policy, which means that any localised outbreaks were met with really strict lockdowns. There was quarantining of cases. And basically after sort of nearly, what, two, three years um, in November, there were widespread protests in China. And this led to um, President Xi ending the zero COVID policy on the 7th of December and switched to a living with COVID strategy, which is a phrase that will be familiar to people in the UK. But essentially, it means just letting the virus rip, previously heavily suppressed, letting it rip across the country. Um, And this has led to a massive rise in cases, understandably. I mean, a huge suppression for so long. You suddenly open up. Um, There was a leaked memo, I think, just before Christmas, from from Beijing's own public health authorities, which estimated that 250 million people in China had had the virus in just the first 20 days of December. So huge numbers of cases. And on top of that, Beijing has announced it's going to lift its travel restrictions in the country, which will allow Chinese people to travel outside the country for the first time since the pandemic. And that's happening on the 8th of January. Now, this led to huge international concern that this surge in cases and this opening up of travel will lead to spikes elsewhere. So last week, A number of countries announced their own travel restrictions against China. This included the US, Italy, Spain, France, Taiwan, Japan. And after initial resistance, the UK decided to um, impose restrictions as well. Can you run us through what your reporting has revealed about the government's response to this particular outbreak? Yeah, so last week, in response to other countries basically announcing these restrictions, um, Our colleague David Parsley and I picked up on discussions that were going on inside the UK government about possible restrictions. And there was a bit of a a bit of tension going on. I mean, there was health experts, scientific advisors were essentially arguing for new testing rules. But ministers, quite a few ministers, including the prime minister himself and the health secretary, Steve Barclay, were resistant to um, to any new rules. Firstly, because basically it would mean restrictions for the first time, even though they were going to be highly targeted. 
And also because, you know, we already have COVID pretty much circulating in this country. So was it really necessary? And there was about 24 hours where the government was essentially, first of all, saying it wasn't going to do it. And then about 24 hours later, did a U-turn last Friday and the Prime Minister intervened personally and announced these restrictions. Government U-turns is a very familiar phrase, isn't it, Jane? So why did they make that flip then? What caused the change of heart in government? So initially, Rishi Sunak was resistant because he made great play during last summer's Tory leadership contest about his own anti-lockdown credentials. He had spoken up in Boris Johnson's cabinet in the run-up to Christmas 2021 against any new restrictions against Omicron and obviously won that argument. And many Tory MPs are against any fresh restrictions even if they are very just against Chinese travel, um, Sunak hasn't had a very easy first few months in office. Some backbenchers are expecting a electoral wipeout at the next election. Some have announced they're standing down. Others want to see Boris Johnson even return. So he's not in a strong position. And I think that was that explained his initial resistance to the idea. But essentially, he, you know, it's different when you're prime minister. I think it's easy to be a minister in cabinet and to say, oh, I'm standing up for the kind of anti-lockdown sentiment in the party. But I think when you're in the hot seat, things change. You have access to data, a bigger picture, classified documents. And I think there was also a, a sort of an international sense that other countries like the US and France and Spain were doing this, that that the UK has to be shown to be sort of standing shoulder to shoulder with those countries and for standing up against what what is effectively Chinese lack of transparency. So um, they announced this change. And I think I think they, number 10 cast this very much as not about restrictions here, but about limiting travel for people who have, who have got COVID in China, not being able to visit the UK. And um, essentially, because it's about Chinese transparency, a lack of transparency, rather than any restrictions here. And I think they've been able to successfully sort of pull that U-turn off because we haven't had many Tory MPs come out and complain about it. As you mentioned, we have quite high rates of COVID here in the UK at the moment. I think some people will be wondering why it's worth, I guess, putting restrictions on a certain country that is seeing a surge in cases when we ourselves are seeing high rates. What's the government's argument there? What makes this different? I think it is about the the transparency. I mean, you're absolutely right. We've had high cases of COVID circulating you know, in this country for for two years. And it's not so much the threat of more cases coming from China. It is concern about new variants that can emerge from so many cases in China. New variants come more easily when there are a high volume of cases. And if you're getting 250 million cases in just three weeks in China, that is going to allow new variants to emerge. Now, the lack of transparency from China, they weren't being completely open with the number of cases. I think they were saying that there was one death a day last week, which was obviously ridiculous when you've got so many cases, that there is a a sense then that other countries need to step up their surveillance of any cases that are emerging from China. And so it's less about they're, they're worried about more cases here, but they're concerned that we won't be able to spot the next new variant that can emerge. Now, we've obviously already got a huge issue with um, the NHS at the moment. We've got hospitals declaring critical incidents every day. And we have a huge, um, what clinicians are calling a twindemic of COVID cases 
and flu cases. And actually, COVID itself isn't causing that many deaths compared to the height of the pandemic, but flu is probably going to cause more deaths this winter than COVID. And that combination is putting huge pressure on hospitals. So I think any extra threat in the system from COVID, particularly from a new variant that could emerge that could dent our immunity, I think is a concern. And that's why that's why these measures are being brought in. So tell us a bit more about those measures. What are the restrictions that are in place at the moment on Chinese travellers to the UK? So essentially from the 5th of January, um, there will be pre-departure testing requirements for anyone travelling from China into the UK. This means that anyone in China who wants to board a plane has to take a pre-departure COVID test and it has to be PCR, which is the gold standard for testing. And if it is positive, then they cannot travel. Now, it is possible that there are some cases slip through the net. You know, you can not test positive one day. I know that I've experienced this personally myself and then test positive the next. So they're also going to um, monitor people arriving with negative tests in, in, in at Heathrow Airport. But they're going to actually take a sample of passengers ask ask passengers to take some tests and um they will be those tests will be spotted for new variants if they test positive now i've learned actually that this sampling is going to involve two thousand passengers being asked to take tests every day at heathrow um of people arriving from china and that's uk health security officials will be at heathrow handing out pcr tests to as many as two thousand passengers a day so it's a huge operation but that is um, is really because they are concerned about the new variants. And the third thing that's going on is that doctors who are already treating patients for COVID in this country are now being asked to find out if the patient has been has travelled to China. If a patient has travelled to China in the past two weeks, um, then they will have their PCR samples fast tracked to labs so that scientists can detect for new variants. So really, the focus is on are there new variants coming into the country rather than do we need to ask people who are positive with COVID to isolate? And to be clear, none of the people who are testing positive for COVID will be asked to isolate because we just don't, we don't have self-isolation rules in this country anymore. So it's really just about finding who's positive and whether their um, samples, whether their genome sequences show new variants. Let's talk more about that new variant, Jane. I believe it's called, and correct me if I'm wrong, XBB.1.5. Not super catchy, but tell us what it is that makes this variant so noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame because we used to have Delta, Omicron. It was easy to to talk about these um, variants. But the issue is we've had so many letters. We've had a kind of alphabet soup of variants in the last year. They're all, they all come from the straight, the same Omicron strain. So you can't call it a new Greek letter. They just have to have letters and numbers. Now, this variant is really interesting. It isn't actually coming from China. Um, the main, the dominant variant in China at the moment is called BF7. And that um, has already circulated here in this country. XBB15 is actually taking off in the United States at the moment. And ironically, we're not imposing any restrictions against US travel, but the argument there is because they, the US are very open about their data. It's causing, I wouldn't say concern, but it's causing interest because it's taking off really quickly. It's um, outcompeting other strains. And um, over here, we've just got 4.56% of cases are 
XBB15, but it's actually fast growing. And I think in a few weeks, it will probably become dominant. So it will likely fuel the next wave of COVID. But it's important to say that each successive wave of Omicron has been smaller than the last. So we've had the original Omicron last Christmas, then it was BA2, BA3 didn't really do anything, BA4, 5 were dominant over the summer. In the autumn, we've had a kind of al- that alphabet soup of, of granddaughter and great granddaughter variants of Omicron. And this XBB15 has kind of emerged as the kind of the, 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 the winner of that, that soup, if you like. So it's important to say that also Omicron variants, they're very familiar to our immune systems. We've got fantastic immunity here, relatively speaking, through previous infection and through vaccination. So anything that is basically from the Omicron family isn't going to be a great threat. Obviously, there will be some waning of immunity for people, particularly vulnerable people, and that's why they're urged to carry on getting booster shots when they're asked for. But for the vast majority of people, really anything that's from the Omicron family won't be a a serious threat. It won't stop you from getting ill, but it, you know it's probably going to stop you from getting seriously ill or hospitalised. Are the symptoms of XBB15 um, like we've seen before, or can people expect any differences in that regard? Yeah, it's it's very interesting actually that the initial reports from studies in the US, and now there haven't been any actual studies of whether there's a greater immune escape with XBB15, but there are reports of a lot of people getting ill who have had the vaccine before. Um, but there's there's no suggestion that XBB15 is more severe and can cause somebody who's had, you know, two or three vaccinations any more serious illness than they would have done from, say, you know, an earlier Omicron or an earlier COVID strain. I think what we can see as well with these variants is that when they are fitter, this means that they can basically take off and become more transmissible. There's often a trade-off in that in the genome of that virus. So um, to become fitter, there's a sort of a... The mutations are favoured for higher transmission, but at the expense of mutations that, say, can escape vaccines, which is good in a way because it means that, you know, if you have a virus circulating that's highly transmissible, you don't want it to be worse in terms of severity or vaccine escape. We've had the opposite effect as well with with variants. I think the beta variant had potential to escape vaccines, but it wasn't very fit. It didn't take off in this country. It didn't have high transmission. So there's often a trade-off here. And I think this is what, um, it's a sort of the evolution of COVID, if you like, since 2019 has been that Variants will come and go and they'll become the ones that are more successful are actually the ones that are the most easily transmitted between humans. But they don't they, they don't actually cause that much severe illness and death when you take vaccines into account, when you take prior infection. I mean, obviously, people are still being admitted to hospital with COVID, but the but the kind of the barrage of weapons that we have against COVID is so much better than it was two years ago and three years ago that... Um, it's a much more manageable virus than it was back then. Taking this back to Westminster, Jane, you've been writing about how Sunak's decision to change track on this had implications from his party. Tell us a bit about what those are. Yeah, so I think um, the Prime Minister is, as I was saying, in, in quite a, it, you know, he hasn't had an easy few months since becoming Prime Minister. He didn't expect to be Prime Minister. He's had to sort of 
hit the ground running really, or it was expected to hit the ground running and to basically calm down the markets and calm down Westminster and make, be it essentially a technocrat, be a very um, calming prime minister in, in charge of government. So in a way that's that's good for for the markets, it's good for the economy, you know, you want inflation to come down. He's done lots of things, but he hasn't really inspired Conservative MPs into, um, he hasn't done what, say, Boris Johnson would have done in, in 2019 and come up with lots of new policies and lots of initiatives. Now, some people would argue that's probably the best way to govern, which is to not pander to your backbenchers, but to be more um, sensible and to think about the bigger picture and to put the economy first and bring down inflation. But he also, he's getting a lot of criticism at the moment for not getting to grip with the NHS crisis. I mean, the the last thing we've heard from Rishi Sunak was on New Year's Eve and his New Year's message, which was about 2023 is going to be a bit of a bumpy year, but he's here to take control of it. I think there's a sort of concern that there isn't, even among Tory MPs, that there isn't really the sense of crisis that there needs to be from the top of government about the NHS. And that feeds into a wider, I think, concern among Tory MPs that he's not really setting... Westminster alight. He hasn't got the charisma that Boris Johnson had. The Tories are doing very badly in the polls behind Labour. There's talk of Boris Johnson possibly having a comeback later this year if the local elections go badly. So that's the backdrop really to everything that Rishi Sunak does is seen in that context. And I think that everything he does now on COVID, you know, COVID is is coming back as a as a story, as an interesting aspect. And we're not going to be seeing sort of the any lockdowns or school closures or anything, but it is interesting, again, as a story. And there will be those tensions there. A lot of backbenchers really hated lockdown. They really hated any restrictions. And and anything that Rishi Sunak does in in terms of COVID will be scrutinised. And I think he's got, you know, he's got away with this U-turn on the China policy because it's very narrow, it's very targeted, it doesn't affect people really over there in this country. But I think any further restrictions in terms of travel that he's thinking about will be heavily resisted from, from Conservative MPs. And I think that's sort of the the context in which to see these measures. Jane, thank you so much for sharing your vast wealth of expertise in this area with us. It's always great to speak to you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Reporting like Jane's, which informs you and challenges, is what we do every single day at I. On our website, inews.co.uk, you can read our daily coverage of the most important news from across the country, straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators. An I digital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news, whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted non-partisan news, and we have a special offer for listeners of our podcast. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. In return, you get uninterrupted access to all of our journalism, including exclusive newsletters from expert correspondents, access to our app, plus dozens of puzzles every single day.
I for Open Minds. Subscribe today. It's a question that humans have been grappling with since the dawn of time. How can we live for longer? Well, we might just have cracked it. Scientists are about to begin trialling a drug that could increase a human's healthy lifespan drastically, raising life expectancy to 120. While it's a long way off pharmacy counters, those scientists have found a way to slow down and potentially even prevent the natural ageing of T-cells, a key part of our body's immune defences. Tom Borden is our science and environment correspondent and is looking into this potentially game-changing breakthrough. Tom, can you explain to us how this drug may work? So so the key cells at the centre of the immune system and that this drug would look to to tackle and kind of boost are called T-cells. And they're basically the immune cells that hone in on any kind of foreign body, if you like, and uh, that, that sort of shouldn't be there, whether it's a disease or some kind of infection or whatever, and try and see it off. There are protective caps on the end of the cells and they get worn down gradually over time. And they do get rebuilt. There's natural processes in the body that rebuild them gradually, but still there's a net reduction over time. You know, it gets to the stage where they pretty much wear away and there's no protection on the end of these immune cells at all and they stop functioning uh, and that means that the immune system becomes just a little bit weaker and then over time more and more of the the cells stop functioning and the immune system just becomes weaker and weaker. So is that why older people are more vulnerable to to many illnesses and I guess eventually why we are able to succumb to them? Exactly yeah that's that's one of the key reasons. And what, what they've found here is they've found that they can take proteins from elsewhere in the body and essentially sort of transform them into drugs and inject those drugs. And what they do is they build up the protective caps on the end of these immune cells so that they last for longer. And these protective caps are called telomeres. So, Tom, how far along is the drug? How far sort of into the development process are we on this? It's still quite early days, but but still pretty exciting. I mean, it's unlikely that we'll have any drug available for use within a decade, for example. Um, But what they have done is that they've shown that this a, a drug based on these principles works in mice and also human cells in the laboratory and what it did is it added 10 years to the life of these immune cells they sort of did it in mice and then they sort of translated it into what that meant for human years Um, so you can't quite go as far as saying that if we use the drug now it would extend your life by 10 years unfortunately it's not quite that simple and there's all sorts of safety tests that will need to be done first in humans before you know it it can be used as with the covid vaccines or anything else obviously there has to be extensive tests in huge numbers of people first so it's an incredibly good um step or a number of steps in the right direction that give real cause for hope but it's still going to be a way off yet unfortunately well let's talk more about that cause for hope Among scientists that you've been speaking to, how excited are people? How rare is a discovery like this? Yeah, they are. They are pretty excited. I mean, scientists are quite 
cautious naturally and so and they don't want people to turn around in a few years time and say I thought you said that there was going to be this drug available and where is it um but nonetheless they they you know they are quite excited about it Alexandre Benedetto um he's an aging expert at Lancaster University and Crucially, he, he wasn't involved in the study. Um, obviously, people involved in the study are also pretty cautious, but it's always good to get sort of outside voices saying that it's worth getting excited about these kind of things as well. Uh, he says this research is very exciting and opens the door to tackling immune cell uh, deterioration, which plays a critical role in human ageing. Once we understand all the natural mechanisms that allow specific immune cells to benefit we may be able to promote healthier ageing by rejuvenating the immune system. And that, that's, that's a key thing. It's, it, it's, it's not just to do with extending your life, but it's to do with extending your healthy life. They, they call it health span. Uh, it's the number of kind of healthy years that, that you live. And that's, that's not really kept pace with increasing longevity people are living longer and longer but they're not necessarily staying healthy the most exciting thing actually about this is the idea that it could extend your healthy lifespan by by a good number of years but in in the process of doing that it's it will make you less likely to succumb to fatal diseases such as cancer or something like that um, and so it, it will also have a sort of knock-on effect of, of extending you know in some cases at least of extending your life. Tom who's behind all this where's all this research coming from? So the, the person sort of the main guy involved in this is Alessio Lana and he's an honorary professor at UCL in London University College London. He set up his own company called Scent Cell Life and there now he's quite sort of secretive about it because he doesn't really want to give away too much at the moment because it's quite exciting and you know he wants to keep it to himself if you like um but he's he's got big plans for some significant trials this year to you know take take things to the next stage so tom i mean i know we're looking further down the line on this but do you have any sense of access to this drug when and if it might come to fruition for example do you think from your sort of experience in this area that it could be something that might be on the nhs or will it always be you know paid for private and possibly very expensive i have sort of images in my head of a james bond villain you know hoarding all of this life-saving drug I, what what do you think it could be like in terms of access well uh I wouldn't profess to, to, to have any degree of a huge degree of certainty on this. But if, if it turns out that it is it is very effective, then it makes, um, you know, very good sense for the NHS to make it freely available because the main the main function of this is to improve your immune system. And it can cut out, you know, all sorts of or reduce the, the levels of all sorts of diseases and, and, and ailments that people have in older age so that it will keep huge numbers potentially keep huge numbers of people out of hospital uh, and also make them less likely to need to go to care homes and, and all sorts of things like that so uh, you know I, I don't see any reason why it should be a massively expensive drug to produce it I, I would have thought it would have been you know not not too expensive and no more expensive than all sorts of other drugs that are commonly available um, and the investment could pay off very magnificently. Has anyone got this close to a life-extending drug before? So yeah, this could well be 
one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, breakthroughs in the last few decades, actually, because for years, scientists have been trying to find out more and understand more about how these protective caps wear down and how they can be rebuilt and what mechanisms in the body could potentially help with that. And what they've done is they've unearthed a, a new mechanism within the body that can basically be harnessed to provide proteins that can be used to rebuild these uh, these telomeres. And so although there's almost certainly scientists all over the world sort of working on the same kind of problem uh, in different kinds of ways, this this is perhaps the most exciting of all of the um, methods being pursued. I wanted to ask you, Tom, about the wider context of all of this and really whether this is entirely and, and exclusively a positive thing. You mentioned the ability um, to keep people healthier for longer, but do we want people to actually live for longer? You know, we know that there's a problem with an aging population in the UK. What's your take on the wider societal impact of all of this? I think there's definitely a it's definitely a, a valid question to ask whether or not we want an aging population if that population is going to be very unhealthy and require lots of help if you like the key thing here is this idea again about having a healthy older age i don't think it's black and white and um you know there are new, lots of nuances but i think as a general rule then obviously having a healthier older population is well i would i would say would be would be very desirable tom you've been writing about science for many years tell us a bit about the context that all this is coming in we know that that extending one's life is one of the great questions of humanity you know plenty of people have become obsessed with the idea of living forever what's the appetite really for for something like this yeah, I mean, there there is obviously um, a huge appetite for any drug that can extend uh, people's lives. Um, it, you know, on a on a sort of on a person to person level, I mean, almost anybody I imagine would 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 want to live longer. Um, and obviously, from the NHS's point of view, the idea of a a much healthier um, population is, is going to make things much more um, tolerable uh, for the health service as well. Um, so, uh, and lots of scientists are looking at lots of different areas, you know, cancer, diabetes, heart conditions, all these kind of things. Uh, and what's great about this particular uh, development, if it, if it ends up working is that it could potentially reduce the risk of all sorts of diseases so it's it's almost it's not really a catch-all but it's certainly you know is far more significant in, in some ways than it is than a, than a cure or significant development in one specific disease you know it could potentially help with all sorts thanks so much for joining us tom it's absolutely fascinating to uh, learn more about this thanks very much it's been nice talking about it for daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and grab yourself a special 20% off deal. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackwall and on Instagram at Molly.Blackall. 
Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you all next week.